Laodicea is what we're talking about tonight. We're going to start in the scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. We're going to read the scripture together tonight. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the reading of God's word tonight. Um, I did a little bit of word association as I was preparing for our time together, thinking of cities, uh, and then jotting down the first thing or two that came into my mind. And I want to share some of those with you tonight as I begin. And I started with Calgary. And in my mind, the thing that is most connected with Calgary as an East Coaster who really doesn't have any sort of a, a center on Calgary is, is obviously the Calgary Stampede. Philadelphia. City of Brotherly Love, Rocky, Montreal, Bring Back the Expos, Poutine, London, Buckingham Palace, the London Eye, Paris, the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, Dublin, gotta be you too, gotta be you too, Sydney, the Opera House, Vancouver, Beautiful mix of of coast and of mountains. Toronto, CN Tower, Toronto Blue Jays. How about them Jays, by the way? Madrid, fashion, architecture. Laodicea. What's the first thing that pops into your mind when you think about Laodicea? I will spit you out of my mouth. Laodicea is probably one of the most well-known cities or place names mentioned in Revelation and probably one of the most well-known in the New Testament. 
Not so much famous, though, as it is infamous. Infamous for being on the receiving end of what can aptly be described as a holy tongue lashing in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Infamous for being lukewarm. It's a description meant to be uncomfortable. Lukewarm, as we'll come to see, is not a good thing. It says, I've been sitting around untouched, and now the freshness and the vibrancy and the flavor is being overwhelmed and replaced by this sort of day-old, stale quality. This evening, in the time that we have, we're going to look at this city. We're going to look at this church. We're going to look at this stern rebuke. And we're going to look at the truth of the gospel in the midst of all of these. This passage is one part warning. We see this in a couple of different ways. Firstly, we see it in the initial greeting. Jesus is presenting himself in some very specific terms. Terms that we simply cannot afford to gloss over. Terms that are important to our understanding of the text. Secondly, We see this in the reality of the situation for the church in Laodicea. The simple fact is they were not doing well. Jesus knew it. Jesus let them know it. And because we're privy to the letter, we know it too. The first half of this text is is sobering, to say the least. Sobering for those Christians in Laodicea that would have been lambasted to the point uh, that they probably just didn't want to hear anymore. But also sobering for us today in that this is meant to be a reality check. That if we take our gaze away from Jesus, we are also in danger of becoming lukewarm, tasteless, stale. But just as this text is one part warning, it's also one part hope-filled. We see this hope clearly in the remedy that Jesus proposes. This group was, by all accounts, uh, a dysfunctional mess. Clearly on the edge of collapse, anything but useful and healthy and vibrant. But friends, it's important for us to realize that this is not where the letter ends. And finally, this passage concludes with the eventuality that Jesus is coming, that he's knocking on the door, and that our response to the invitation of Jesus will determine what our eternal path will be. So tonight, we're going to walk from from warning to hope in four simple steps. The greeting, the reality, the remedy, and the eventuality. Friends, whether you've been a Christ follower for 50 years or someone who's just checking out church, maybe even for the first time, this text is for you. Because the beauty of the call of Jesus on our lives remains the same no matter where we are in our journey of faith. That being, come to me, abide in me, live for me, and when all is said and done, spend eternity with me. Let's pray really quickly, then we're going to dive in. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. We thank you for this community. We pray that you would teach us tonight mightily through your word. 
God, would you touch the hearts that need to be touched? Would you impact our lives tonight? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's start with the beginning. Let's start with the greeting. Verse 14. And, and if you haven't got this about me and my style by now, I like to walk through each verse as we go. So keep your finger in that Bible because we're going to be coming back to that passage over and over again. Verse 14, And the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In this greeting, Jesus, through John, is referring to himself as the Amen, as the faithful witness, as the true witness, and as the beginning of God's creation. These are specific terms written to a church that was in desperate need of a reminder regarding what this whole faith in Christ thing was all about. The amen. For many of us, the amen is the way that we finish our prayer times. And if you're anything like me, maybe you've gone through a large part of your life just saying it because that's what you heard and that's what you were taught to say. Like a, a, a period maybe to finish a sentence or... Uh, you know, proper spiritual grammar, if you will. The fact is that amen is derived from two Hebrew, Hebrew verbs, excuse me, both of which convey a sense of that which is true and therefore dependable or certain. One commentator says, saying amen is a way of saying that something is utterly trustworthy, a foundation upon which to build. Therefore, this text is declaring that Jesus is true, that Jesus is utterly trustworthy, that Jesus is the only foundation upon which to build, that Jesus is the Amen. Verse 14 continues with the faithful and the true witness, simply that Jesus is the true revelation of the Father, that he's the real deal that his promises are true because they are the very promises of God, and God, because of his nature, cannot lie. I'm reminded of Hebrews 6, 18. God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. And finally, the last part of this greeting, the beginning of God's creation. That before anything else, he was. Inferring that when all is said and done, he will be that he is eternal, that he is sovereign. Jesus, in one small sentence, reaffirms the profound truth of the gospel that he is our anchor, that he is our foundation, that he is our source of hope and truth, that he is our portion, that he is our salvation, that he is over all and in all and through all, and that anything other than him that we put our hope in is a waste of time and a waste of breath. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness to the Father. He is the beginning 
the absolute beginning of God's creation. And this, as we'll come to see, was a necessary greeting as he addressed this shell of a church that had seemingly lost its zeal and had begun to find its worth in things other than Christ. When I read this, I think probably because of the context and the tone, it almost feels like a, like a resume of sorts to me, like Jesus is giving these folks his credentials, almost as if he's saying, you know, on what authority do I come to give you these words of harsh rebuke? Well, on this authority, insert God of amen, insert faithful, insert true witness to the Father, the beginning of everything. So in light of these, please have a seat, be quiet, and hear what I have to say. And then it gets real. Very quickly real. And we get to the reality of the situation for the Laodicean church. Verses 15 through 17. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is maybe the most well-known portion of this particular text, and I would suggest, um, again, probably one of the better-known texts in the New Testament, it's a little bit shocking, isn't it? It's almost like you need to read it twice to make sure you get the proper uh, uh, flow of what Jesus is saying here. And admittedly, the language is aggressive. And this translation is actually tame uh, in that some others will say, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. It certainly paints a specific type of picture, doesn't it? Interestingly, what makes it all the more aggressive is the fact that the letter didn't begin with any good points. None. And this uh, remains an unfortunate distinction of the church in Laodicea. Many of us have jobs. <laughs> Hopefully most of us have jobs. But many of us have jobs where there's some sort of review, either annually or semi-annually. And often the reviewer will begin with a list of things that you've done well to soften the blow, if you will, when they get to the areas of growth, quote-unquote, meaning the things that you just did really poorly. But not here. Jesus didn't try to pad the the blow by, by starting with some positives, if there were any, we don't know. Doesn't sound like it. There was no beating around the bush. There was no attempt at alleviating the tension. This was obviously a message that needed to be received loudly and clearly and plainly and succinctly. You are neither hot nor cold. Rather, you are lukewarm. That's verse 15. Traditionally, I think many of us are taught that this statement likens hot and cold to good and bad. 
with the Laodiceans in some sort of center, gray, apathetic area. That they were neither on fire for God nor in open rebellion against him, but rather in the politically correct middle somewhere. And, and that this was frustrating to, to God to the point where he just wanted to be rid of this church that didn't want to stand for anything. And there's certainly some validity to this thought. Obviously, today we see churches that don't really want to stand for a whole lot. I hope that isn't the case for this church. Although, let me suggest to you another angle through which to view this statement. And again, it comes back to context. The fact that this letter was written to a certain group from a certain town during a certain period. And if we neglect to take this into account, then we might miss something. That being Laodicea was one of three cities that were closely grouped together. Um, northeast by about six miles sat the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for its mineral hot springs renowned for their healing properties. And people would come from all over to bathe in these waters. Meanwhile, southeast of Laodicea, by about 11 miles, sat the city of Colossae. Colossae had access to cold, refreshing drinking water flowing down to their town from snow-capped local mountains. Laodicea didn't have direct access to either of these. And so they built a series of aqueducts in order to funnel the water into their city. Unfortunately for them, by the time the water got there, the hot water had become significantly less hot and the cold water had become tepid and warm. In both cases, the result was just really unimpressive. Hot water, therefore... Good. Cold water, therefore, good. Lukewarm water, not so good. This middle ground was at best far below average and at worst completely revolting. And this, I believe, quite accurately spells out what was the sad reality for this group of people. That they simply couldn't fulfill any function properly that there were no positive properties amongst this group. Jesus is telling them that at this moment, they are pretty much useless. Why? Well, we get a hint of that in verse 17 when it says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. This verse would seem to suggest that their uselessness stems from their exclusion of Christ. To what degree, I, I don't know. The text isn't definitive, but exclusion of Christ nonetheless. Um, Laodicea was a well-off city, and a city that took pride in being completely self-sufficient. One commentator I read even called him smug. And perhaps this arrogance, this pride led into the church. This language would certainly seem to suggest that this was the case. Friends, when we begin to separate, 
our dependence on Christ from our faith, what we're left with effectively is hollow religion. And I'm not a religion basher in that I think religion, if harnessed within the context of proper, healthy faith in Jesus, can have a wonderful impact on our, our walk. But without Jesus, it just means nothing. This is, I suspect, where the church in, in Laodicea finds itself at this point. Um, a Christian church without Jesus. <laughs> Filling that hole with temporary things that the culture around them deemed important. And as we learn about Laodicea, this is where we need to check ourselves. This is the crux of the warning, friends. And in these important moments of introspection, we need to ask questions like, is Jesus central in everything that we do? Is our goal above all else to worship Him and to make Him known? Is our gaze fixed on Him? It would seem to me as though the Laodiceans were simply caught playing church. And this is a scary thought. A very scary thought. Fortunately, this is not the end that there is hope. And we arrive at that remedy in verses 18 and 19. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may close your, clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Laodicea was counted as a have city uh, for, for um, three specific things. Firstly, it was renowned as a banking center. It was renowned, secondly, as a fashion hub of the ancient world. There was a, a particular sort of sheep or goat that produced a particular sort of wool or whatever, and they were uh, 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 counted as um, a fashion hub because of that, and they were renowned as a medical center. There was actually a medical school in Laodicea, and they specialized in ear and eye treatments. And so this is why we see in these verses Jesus referring to these things. He says to the Christians in Laodicea, look, what you have here, this money these clothes, these medical advances, this medical school, the status that comes with these things, this is 100% temporary. So stop worrying so much about the stuff. Stop worrying about those temporary things that you see around you and start worrying instead about your eternal destination, your eternal health. What this city can offer will not complete you. I am the only one that can make you whole. So come back to me. Repent. Cast aside these things and pick up your cross once again. Exchange the temporary for the eternal. Paul, uh, in his words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary. 
but what is unseen is eternal. The second half of this passage in one swift motion transcends this gross misconduct, this depressed reality of human failure, painting a picture instead of the hope that remains. That although God's people have sinned greatly, have disobeyed over and over again, have followed their own way, have gone off the rails, have completely blown it, that as long as there's breath and as long as Jesus hasn't returned, repentance is still on the table, mercy is still being offered, and that there's grace enough to cover a vast multitude of sins, including those of the Laodiceans and including my own. Ever have a parent who, and some of you will be more removed of this than others, however, who in the middle of disciplining you says, I'm doing this for you? Man, I hated that. It's hard to hear at that point, isn't it? Jesus in verse 19 says that exact thing, reaffirming to this group that he loves them and he cares for them, and that it's for those reasons that he is sending this note of discipline. This call to repentance. That Jesus is saying, in spite of everything, come to me. To the Laodiceans, come to me. And to us today, come to me. Come to me, those who've fallen away and have your faith renewed. Come to me, those who've yet to make a commitment of faith to me. And take that step today. And to those who continue to hold firm, keep your gaze on me and you will be counted amongst those who will have conquered. And this brings us finally to the eventuality presented in the text. And this is verses 20 to 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Revelation, the book of Revelation the different interpretations of how it all plays out can be a contentious issue. We know that. But let me just say this. Yep, I'm going to say it. (laughs) No matter what's your specific view on how the end will come, the fact is that Jesus is coming. That he's knocking now but that there will come a point when the knocking will cease. The door will open wide and he will have returned. In light of this, we have the opportunity to respond to the calling of Jesus. This great hope that we've just spent time revealing in one of two ways. We can open the door in faith making a decision to follow Jesus, 
making a decision to join God in what he's doing in this world. And many of you have made this decision. Many of you are living in this light. Or we can hide from him. We can ignore him. We can continue on as if he's not there, as if he's not knocking on the door. God, that the Spirit would convict those who have yet to open that door. In the midst of this Laodicean mess, and that's what it is, it's a mess. In the midst of this mess, in the midst of this shocking, blunt language, in the midst of this warning, Jesus is calling his people back to himself. Jesus is proclaiming the hope of salvation that as we put our trust and our faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, that he lifts us out of the muck, that he sets our feet on solid ground, that he points us in the direction of the cross, and that he gives us what we need in order to sustain us until that time when our race is done and we walk into eternity with him. This is what Jesus is calling those in Laodicea into. This is what Jesus is calling all of these seven churches into. And this is what Jesus is calling us into today. May it be so for each of us and for this church as we minister to those in our midst.